As you know, we are participating in the 120 initiative where many churches in the city are preaching the same sermons for the month of May. And then also encouraged in that is to do a pulpit swap. And so we are swapping pulpits this morning. Our beloved Pastor Louis is in the Central Baptist Church this morning, and we wish him well there. And in response, we have the Central Baptist minister with us this morning. So, uh, Pastor Charles, would you maybe stand with your wife, Carol, just to greet the people? <clears throat> and then, Charles, would you come up in the meantime, please? Uh, very interesting. We have a connection with the Central Baptist Church. I think uh, Pastor Charles will give a bit more detail. But they planted this church in 1930s, somewhere around there. This church, Hatfield Baptist Church, was planted by them. And this is where we are today. Um, Pastor Charles has been a minister at the, at the Central Baptist Church for 17 years now with his wife, Carol. And they have four children. And um, when he was asked how we should introduce him, he said he's two things. He's grateful for the Lord's grace and the privilege of being in ministry. I can't think of a better introduction. Can I give to you Pastor Charles? Thank you, Charles. God bless you. Well, good morning. This is quite something for me, and you know, I'm used to just a few people up front, uh, maybe 300 or 400, and I think there may be two or 3,000. So greetings to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus, and greetings from the Central Baptist Church in Arcadia, and we also have a campus now up in Zwavelpoort. Great to be at the Hatfield Church this morning. I often say to our congregation in Arcadia that our church is a taste of heaven. And looking around here this morning, I see that the same could be said of Hatfield. And the reason I say that is because the Bible tells us in Revelation 7 that people will be gathered at the throne of God from every nation, tribe, and language, worshiping at His throne. We've been doing a bit of that this morning. But I do want to maybe just make a few comments. Uh, the Central Baptist Church, in fact, started in 1889 and uh, has been at work in the city, planting a number of churches. But the Hatfield Church was the first of the church plants. A couple of comments, perhaps. Uh, meetings were first held in 1903 in the home of J.W. Gregan in Linwood Road. So that was the beginnings of the Hatfield, the then Hatfield Church. In 1906, the Honorable Johann Rissick had an old army bungalow erected in Duxbury Road and services were held there. In 1918, a site was bought at 1120 South Street. And I think some of you will have memories from South Street. And, and an old wooden iron billiard room erected. This was the only church building in the eastern suburbs, and all denominations used it. And then Mr. A.G. von der Sloot was one of the deacons most involved with the work at Hatfield. A separate church at Hatfield was formed in October 1932, and the property was transferred to it. 1940, and I saw in your foyer this morning, the sons of the Reverend G.W. Cross built an attractive building seating 200 in South Street. This was known as the Cross Memorial Church. The church grew steadily until the arrival in 1962 of Pastor Ed Rabbit, and I think you know the rest. 
So that's just something of our connectedness as churches in the city and uh, do trust and, and of course know God to be at work uh, among you and certainly praying that he would work through us as well. But let me turn to the scriptures and I invite you to turn to John chapter 1 this morning and I'd like to read some of that chapter to you uh, before we look at God's word in expounding this passage. So John chapter 1 from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you have neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Why don't you pray as we just bow our heads. Father, we, we thank you for this written word, revealing to us the living word. And again this morning we, we come asking that as your word tells us, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God that you would build our faith, that your church would be strengthened and edified, that men and women and young people come to know you. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, be used by your spirit to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, I've come to see as, as a pastor of a church in the city that many of our young people in our church have to go through a process before they can get married. I want to use that word process to introduce this, this message this morning because in their context, and many of you know this, a labola price needs to be found to be settled on before the marriage can take place. There can be no marriage until the families have settled the labola. Now I think settling matters is what many of us often do and, and again just wanting to think this morning about settling things in the course of life in our lives we regularly settle matters. My son called me yesterday from Peter Maritzburg he said dad I, I, I've just sold my car. I was asking 70 something thousand but, but we settled on 60,000 rand and I closed the deal. You've closed many deals. You've sold houses. You've sold cars. You've settled deals. 
Couples who get divorced, we, we now draw up a settlement agreement. And, and, and at the end of a lot, long and hard day at work, you, you settle down and relax. If something is settled, it basically means that you have a final conclusion that you've reached, that you've convinced about, that, that you've concluded an arrangement or a belief. Now, God speaks to us in this passage this morning on a crucial matter that needs to be settled. And I'm urging you this morning to, to hear what God has to say and, and wanting to ask the question, have you settled? Have you got to the place where you once and for all have settled in your mind, in your heart, the question of the world? understanding the world that you're living in. You're in Pretoria, you're in South Africa, in the larger context of the world, and my very first point this morning is going to be to ask that question, how do you understand the world? Well, my world over the past weeks and months, just to give you some insight, uh, it's been rather disturbing. Since Wednesday, just this past week, we've had two deaths. Central Baptist Church, long-standing members, passed away. Just last Sunday morning, I think it was, I got home from church, uh, started putting some meat on, on the fire and brying something for lunch, and I heard a gunshot. And I thought, first of all, thought, is, is, is that a motorbike backfiring or, or was that somebody shooting? And, and sure, sure enough, again, there were two more shots and then a few moments and there were another three shots, I think it was. And, and I wondered what was going on. And later in the day, and I'm sure many of you heard this, that, that a Pretoria gynecologist was shot at Gift Acres, about 300 meters from our home, both of his legs the week before that, I prayed with an elderly couple in our church. They just heard news that their grandson had committed suicide. And then just a couple of months ago, my wife and I received a disturbing, very disturbing letter. I studied uh, at the Baptist Theological College back in the late 80s, had a classmate along with us then with many others. And uh, this classmate, now living in another country, wrote a letter to inform my wife and I that he is now a she. He is now a she. And he's now started hormone treatment to get his body aligned with his brain. Also some sad news just before that. We heard some good friends of ours in the United Kingdom looking forward to the birth of their beautiful little daughter one week before the due date. Suddenly, no life. The baby was still born. And not to forget the ongoing allegations in the media, constant reporting in our country of state capture, uh, regular startling confessions from significant people in the state. Now I'm getting you, I'm wanting you to think, that's, that's a glimpse into my world. Last couple of weeks, last couple of months, and, 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 and perhaps your past few weeks and perhaps past few months haven't, have been less dramatic. 
But I would imagine in, in a big crowd like this this morning, no doubt in my mind that some of you have faced some difficult times, some hardships. Many are facing a variety of extreme painful difficulties and disappointments. And perhaps if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, my life is trouble-free and carefree and I'm fine, I want to tell you that sitting next to you, somebody has gone through difficulty and what we could say, you're sitting next to someone in a pool of tears. Back in John's world, back to the passage, the Jews were also straining at the bit. Life was hard for them. These Jews had been, and, and of course, were still, they still were being victimized. They were being oppressed by the Romans. They'd been marginalized and pushed out, as it were, from the mainstream of society. The current challenge in their lives was unbearable, difficult. And in their minds and in their thinking, they had an idea what the problem in their world was. They had settled, I believe they had settled in their minds what the solution ought to be. They were convinced that the problem they faced was that of unwelcome, repeated domination by foreign powers and bad leaders. Bad leaders. They thought they needed a new, powerful liberator. Just reading the passage, I'm sure you noticed that some of the anticipation beginning to rise amongst them was maybe John the Baptist. Maybe this will be the man. Maybe this will be the person that will bring an end to their hardship and to their difficulty and give them a life of desired freedom and give them an ability to live their lives to the full. Down through the years, the Jews' lives were filled with harsh tyrants. I want to give you just some examples. The first example is that of a particular leader by the name of Antiochus Epiphany. Somebody will, uh, some of you will perhaps remember him. He was a Greek king who tried to Hellenize the Jews. He tried to make them into Greeks. 170 BC. It's written about the particular action by this king. In an act of brazen disrespect, Antiochus raided the temple in Jerusalem, stealing its treasures, setting up an altar to Zeus, and sacrificing swine on the altar. Total disrespect for the Jews and their God. When the Jews expressed their outrage over the profaning of the temple, Antiochus responded to them by slaughtering a great number of Jews, selling others into slavery, and then he issued an even more draconian decree. Performing the rite of circumcision was punishable by death. And Jews everywhere were ordered to sacrifice to pagan gods and eat pig flesh. Now that's tough. I want you to think about this passage, the context of the people, the Jews who were going through difficult times. Not to forget another example. Remember Herod? We just today, a couple of minutes ago, celebrated the wonderful joy of motherhood, mothers. 
Can you imagine, can you imagine what the mothers went through when Herod ordered all infants under the age of two to be killed? We have that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, can you see, can you see why these Jews understood their world back then to be contaminated with leaders who targeted Jews with evil intent? Now, it's all very well understanding the Bible then, but what about us today? And I want to suggest this morning that for many of us, our own thinking to be very similar. Let me give you some examples. Isn't it true that in the latter part of the 20th century, some of you think back to those days, most people in South Africa understood the problem in their world. They had the settled conviction to be the custodians of apartheid. Others at the same time, were convinced it was terrorism backed by supporters and leaders from the communist countries. And if we come to, to the 21st century in 2017, what about today? Today in South Africa, problems persist. We find that opinions are divided and communities are divided. Some are convinced that our world needs to get rid of corrupt leaders. We need leaders of integrity. Others, on the other hand, believe that leadership needs to be more assertive. Lead, leadership needs need to be making things more equitable. What about further afield? What do people consider to be the problems of the world? If you look at the world of Zimbabwe, there are again those uh, in the community, those in the country, Problems arose and have arisen because of colonial leaders. Others see the chaos as a result of a greedy president. Go further afield to the United States of America. Seen lots of this in, in the media. Donald Trump, many believe, is going to wreck their world. Others believe that Hillary Clinton would have been a one-way ticket to national disaster. Can you, can you see the problem? Can you see how people interpret the world and, and arrive at a conclusion, arrive and settle it at thinking, man, we need good leaders. We need good leaders. And so the thinking goes, the conditions in the world are understood by people, by us, by you and me, to be a result of either good or bad leadership. Good leadership, on the one hand, will bring about strong economies, sustain high levels of employment and strong currencies and financial surpluses will be present and lots of money will be available and law and order will be maintained and environmental management will be done well and citizens will be healthy. That's, that's what we're thinking. Whereas bad leadership, bad leadership will poor economies, struggling people, unacceptable health care, unemployment, and weak currencies, and deficits, and so on, and so on. And so everything hinges in our thinking on the state of leadership. Is that all? Is that all there is to understand in our world? 
Now, I want to concede that it is true that at a certain level, our problems and our needs and our difficulties and our crises and our shortfalls hinge on having bad leaders or good leaders. But I want to show you this morning from the Scriptures that there is a deeper, more serious influence. Getting back to the passage, we see again John has clarified that he's not the anticipated leader they were waiting for. John has clarified that he's not the Christ, that he's not Elijah, that he's not the prophet. He's the one crying in the wilderness. And then he goes on to point out to them there is one among them that they do not know who is infinitely supreme, the one who is worthy of attention. Get to the end of that day, the next day unfolds, there's a beginning conversation as we read on in the passage in verse 29. And he says to the crowds, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. With that announcement and with what follows, and this is where we're going to focus now, John helps us understand today in 2017 how to better understand the world we are living in, you and I, and the world that we face. It's true, it's true that, that leadership must have its place. It's true that, that there is so much more that, that, that we need to see and, and, and the leadership of the world and the rest of the world, that, that there's something more that completes the picture. But much more, and there are two things, there are two things I'm going to want to settle this morning with you that, that we cannot ignore. You must, dear friends, have settled in your mind that is the root and the cause that makes the world what it is. The cause is sin. Sin is the greatest problem that we face in the world. Jesus, I love Jesus in his way that he speaks to issues. He never scratches around in the surface unwilling to be bold and courageous. He never addresses symptomatic issues alone. And in this particular instance, when John is pointing to Jesus, he zeroes in on the root issue of sin. The sin in the world is a great problem, the greatest problem we face, leaving humanity, all of humanity, even as we sit here this morning, with two evident needs. John's conversation with the Jews in the passage helps us to see that the world and its people face what I want to call this morning a relational need, and secondly, a condition need. I'm just going to touch on them very briefly. I mean by relational need that the world is at odds and enmity with God. There's a separation. There's a severing. And not only is there this enmity and the separation, this wedge, this chasm between mankind and God, but God has placed the world under condemnation. The relationship is severed. What, make, what makes matters worse is the condition need, is that the world is full of people, full of people with a problem of a sinful heart. 
The condition is such that the world is blind to its destiny, that the world doesn't even see that it's in trouble with God. Now, John's not telling the Jews here anything that they hadn't been told already in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had impressed upon Israel again and again the heart of the problem of sin is, in fact, the sinful heart. They were in the grip, get, get the picture there, get, they were in the grip of, of a nature, of, of, of who they were that was hostile to God and, of course, liable to the consequences of the rebellion it produced. And worse than that, we see in the pages of the Old Testament, powerless. They were so powerless to do anything by themselves, unable to change their ways for the future, unable to make amends for the past. In other words, they knew, they should have known, they were in serious trouble. Well, let me get to some more specific detail. In the light of what John says, about the need, Jesus coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, in the light of that need, how do you understand the world? There are two issues, again, that I want to raise. Because sin is the greatest problem in the world, you do need to understand, even as we gather here this morning, that people will do what they think is right in their own eyes. It's the nature of the sinful heart. It's the expression of the sinful nature. When there is no consideration of God, when there's no consideration for God, self-interest always leads the way. Now, when you understand the world in this way, suddenly, suddenly you interpret the world, and, and when you see something like match-fixing, match you're not surprised. That's, that's what sinful people do because they're serving themselves. You won't be surprised when you come across bribery. You won't be surprised then when, when, when there's the robbing of tax, taxpayers' money for personal empire building. For well, those of us who minister in the city, we've seen on two serious occasions at least xenophobic attacks on people. People wanting to destroy with hatred other people. Not surprised because you understand then. People do what they like and, and you'll see racism and you'll see abortion and you'll see murder and you'll see adultery in community and theft and, and disregard for the poor. Why? It's, it's because people do, people do as they think is right in their own eyes. You see, there's, there's a clear principle in operation. When people do not Submit to authority. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. We saw it in a human, at a human level. In those days, there was no king in Israel. What happens? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Or as the proverb puts it in chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Our world does not want to listen to God's advice. It doesn't take, therefore, much logic to see that if you have 7.4 billion people in the world doing what is right in their own eyes, we'll reap what we sow. 
and you'll see wars and you'll see division and you'll see anger and you'll see hatred and all those things that sin produces. Well, the horror, the horror of the need worsens. And by the way, I'm going to get to the good news. All right? Be patient. But you've got to see the bad news before you see the good news. All right? But, but, but the situation worsens when you realize it's not just the chaos that we see because individual people are doing what is right in his or her own eyes. But let's not forget that the wrath of God also has been unleashed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, which leads me to a second observation. Because sin is the greatest problem, all people will suffer in varying degrees and finally die. Isn't that true? Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Go back to the beginning. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice what God says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice, till you return to the ground. Every single person, including you, including me, will waste away. And like an old canvas tent, our bodies eventually will collapse. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. And I know, and we, we had a taste this morning, I know that there are many times and seasons when we have a taste and a glimpse and experience of original paradise. And life just seems to be so good. We live it and we feel it and life can be so wonderful and so great and, and suddenly, isn't it true? Life is going along and it's going along smoothly and we're making plans and the trajectory is there and it's going to be comfort and it's going to be well and, and suddenly there's a bend in the road. Good friend of mine, one of our churches in Centurion, 47 years old, Wakes up one morning, hadn't been feeling well for a couple of weeks, goes and sees a doctor, and he gets told, you've got serious cancer. Life was good. Now suddenly he's thrown into turmoil. And we have these bends, illness, bereavement, disappointment, injustice, prejudice, brokenness, hurt, divorce. That's the nature of life. People will suffer in varying degrees and finally die. Now I've deliberately spent a number of minutes on laboring this point. And I've done that this morning because I want to convince you from the Bible, from the Word of God, that if you have not reached, that you will reach the settled conclusion how you understand this world we're living in. And that first settled conclusion that, that you need to reach, that I believe is God's word that we ought to reach, is that sin, dear friends, sin is the serious, the most serious problem we face in the world. But there's a second conviction. That's the good news. There's a second conviction that John speaks of. God provides the solution 
to the world's biggest problem. Wonderful, wonderful. How does he do that? Well, throughout Israel's history, God had emphasized the fact that there is one way, only one way to deal with sin and all the alienation that it caused between God and, of course, other human beings. And that one way is sacrifice. There can be no forgiveness of sins unless blood is shed. Even if you go back to Leviticus chapter 17, Old Testament, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. So God, God, God revealed, he's already beginning to unfold what he's going to be doing later. We see with Abraham, Abraham tells his son Isaac, remember at Moriah, that God will provide, God will provide, Genesis 22, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then we don't forget, or I hope you don't forget, the lamb offered in Egypt. Remember the blood that needed to be painted on the lintels of the door, of, of the doors of the houses, so as to avoid, so that the angel of death would pass over. They would not be subject to the work of the angel of death. Sacrifices were also made constantly in the temple worship system, day by day, morning by morning, week in and week out. We see also the repeated revelation from the prophets. Just one example from Isaiah 53, speaking prophetically about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his his mouth. So we go back to chapter 1 of John. John announces the people, and I'm wanting to, to point you this morning in the same way, look and see Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget it. Look and look and look and see Jesus. Look to Jesus constantly, the Lamb of God. He is the one who comes. He comes as the ultimate, this is God's work, the ultimate and the perfect Lamb of God. God sent His Son, Jesus, to deal with the sin of the world. Jesus came to address the biggest need of the world. The sacrificial Lamb, what, what does He do? What does He do to, to address this need? Well, He receives in his body, the, 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 the wrath of the Father on behalf of others. Isn't that amazing? God himself in the person of his son, Jesus, who is perfectly man and perfectly God, he takes on himself and he makes atonement for the sins of his people. He carries, he bears their sins, the punishment for their sins, the punishment for your sins and my sins, undeserving human beings who are at enmity with God. Remember the Old Testament covenant pronounced a curse on anyone, any person who broke the law of God. On the cross, the Lamb not only took the curse but became a curse for us. 
How does that touch you? How does that affect you? What benefits are there? This work that Jesus does as the Lamb of God involves substitution. It's an amazing work of exchange that takes place and also satisfaction. In taking God's curse on himself, Jesus satisfies the holy demands of God. The wrath of God is diverted away from those who repent and believe, those who are the people of God, saving us, folk, saving us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul urging these uh, believers at Thessalonians to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come Jesus died for sinners Jesus took our place in full in filling the role as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now I'm going to hurry on I'm on my conclusion I see our time is gone couple of closing comments. The Lamb of God addresses the relational need that you may have with God here this morning. His atoning work provides forgiveness and access to God. And if we go to the theme that everybody's preaching across our city this morning, Jesus invites you this morning to be reconciled to God to have eternal life, not just life now, but, but life now and then forevermore. He invites you to have rest for your soul, not this struggling, not this burden of guilt and this uncertainty, am I or am I not right with God? Through Jesus, you can be right with God, rest for your soul. And an intimate, he invites individual men and women and children to an intimate fellowship with God. But how does that happen, you may say? Uh, you, you said that people have a conditioned problem. They, they don't have inclinations to want this particular generous gift from God. How does God address that particular problem? Remember, the conditioned need is that people have a problem of a sinful heart. And the condition is such that this, this problem is brings about people having a blindness to destiny and, and even the fact that they have trouble with God. Again, the passage helps us. Wonderfully, we see that not only is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but unlike John, unlike John, who baptizes people in water as a symbolic act, we read on in the passage a little later that Jesus is at work with his spirit, baptizing men and women with the spirit. And so Jesus addresses the ignorant and blind condition of hard and sinful hearts because he works by his spirit among people in our world. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. But how does that work? It works by the conviction and the outpouring of the spirit where God intervenes by his spirit and, and immerses people, causing them to be born again, giving to them the very life of God. And so, friends, this morning, the invitation from God. If you're not a believer, and I trust many of you are believers, but always to be asking, always to be searching, you can know a life free from the power and dominion of sin. You can know a life of rest from evil works. 
Jesus invites you as he works by his spirit to give you a life of victory over sin. And if I may say this morning, South Africans, let's not think, let's not believe, let's not, th- let's not have the settled conviction that our problems in this country are going to be solved by a leader. Leaders will come and leaders will go. There will be bad leaders and there will be good leaders. Jesus forever. Will you settle in your mind and heart? Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one we need. He's the one our country needs. He's the one the world needs. And not only do we receive his generous gift, and I trust you do that, but that we share that far and wide with others as he addresses this sinful condition, eradicating ignorance, eradicating blindness, enabling people to believe, to continue to believe, and to know the blessing of victory over sin. Wonderful, wonderful good news in the light of bad news, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who has secured this for us. And so may God help you, may God bless you, may God keep you as as you continue to receive from him and go forward in your work. And so, Father, as we close this time of preaching this morning, uh, again wanting to pray that, that your word would produce fruit in our lives individually. Those who believe this morning, Lord, that you would encourage them with the gospel. Those who do not believe, Lord, that you would convince them and turn them and change them by your spirit into new creatures and make them to be children of the living God. We thank you again this morning for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. God bless you and thank you for having us.